welcome to Talk Racing to Me with your host, Naomi Tucker. That's me, and we're on show nine. This week's guest, I don't really need to give her an elaborate intro because you will just love her. She's incredibly knowledgeable, covers all angles, does not hold back, and is very funny to boot. I'm talking about Vanessa Binny Rao, Sky Sports racing presenter and producer in the United Kingdom. Not only will you get up to speed on the upcoming Royal Ascot meeting, we go over last weekend's 2,000 and 1,000 guineas winners against the backdrop of European racing history as provided by a wealth of knowledge from Vanessa. It's a brilliant in-depth review of European classic action, as well as analysis of what is to come at this year's altered version of Royal Ascot. Now, a couple of notes. We chatted about King of Change for the Queen Anne Stakes at Royal Ascot this year. A recent update came in via the Racing Post that he will bypass that race in favour of other bigger targets later in the year, hoping to find a bit bit of softer ground than the faster ground that he might be finding next week at the Royal Meeting. So keep in mind, Vanessa and I recorded this on Tuesday before all the official entries were out because I wanted to get this podcast out to you in the early hours of Thursday morning. So going over the Wesley Ward runners, Uh, The actual list of his seven confirmed runners came out as well afterwards, which includes Kimari for the Commonwealth Cup, Sheriff Bianco in the Windsor Castle Stakes, Sunshine City in the same race, the Windsor Castle Stakes, Flying Aletha in the Albany Stakes, Golden Pow in the Norfolk Stakes, Campanelle in the Queen Mary Stakes, and Royal Approval in the same race against her stablemate in the Queen Mary Stakes. So... What has been going on at the In The Money Media Network? Lots. Lots, like always. I mean, I don't think any of us ever sit still. A new Red Bull Rewind with Spencer has just dropped. And as always, you need to listen to Matt Bernier's show to catch up on all the action from the weekend. JK Plus One series continues. And of course, this isn't the only Royal Ascot preview we'll be doing. An entire week of shows are coming up to have you covered for every single day of the Royal Meeting. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. We're on all podcast providers, I do believe. Uh, The majority of us listen on Apple Podcasts, but then I actually had to find my podcast on Spotify because my friend said that that's where everyone listens on too. So there you go. We're also on Spotify and I do believe on a lot of other providers as well. We'll start by looking back at the 2000 guineas. The anticipation was high, with the majority of us thinking we were going to crown a new champion, with Pinatubo having been compared to the mighty Frankel as a two-year-old. However, it, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, I know. I mean, I definitely felt um, a bit disappointed overall in a funny way. Um, just because everyone was so excited about seeing Pinatubu and we, we, it's a cliche, but in racing, we need stars, don't we? We need superstars to keep us going. And he was just so far ahead of the rest last year as a two-year-old. And over here, it was just such a thrill to kind of watch his progress and, um, the sort of horse that he was. I was actually on course at Wolverhampton when he went on debut. 
um, which was amazing because you kind of, it was one of those, um, you know, Godolphin two-year-old debutantes on an all-weather track in England. It happened quite a bit. And we often see a flashy horse with the blue colours on. And you think you've seen something special and sometimes it doesn't materialise. Whereas with him... You know, you could just tell by James. I interviewed James Doyle on the day. And then I interviewed him pre and post race, actually. And pre race, the resounding, I remember it very clearly, the resounding thing was how professional this horse was. And then post race, it was the same. It was like how professional he was. He just is, was a ready made racehorse, really. Of course, he developed and improved throughout his two year old year. But I guess that probably brings sort of for me the element of his three-year-old campaign is obviously it wasn't so much if he was trained on for me it was more for Pinatubu has the others caught up he was so naturally um professional and knew the job as a two-year-old and lots of others potentially lagged behind and then at three had they caught up and I think that's probably what we saw in the guineas um I think he's probably retained a very high, high level of form. And I think it was a very good 2000 guineas. And I, you know, for me, the mile trip isn't a concern. It didn't look like he didn't stay the mile. It looked as though Pinatubi would come on for the run and others that were behind him last season have progressed this season and sort of reached his level potentially. That was my viewing of it. Um, as for the winner, Kameka, I mean, on. I love him. I just think he's, we all have a soft spot for him at Sky Sports Racing because, of course, he won that Burton Futurity, the rescheduled one at Newcastle on the all-weather, which was obviously a historic race, first group one juveniles on the all-weather in England. And that was really exciting for the channel to show that. And so he kind of, for me, and I think for everyone at Sky Sports Racing, we definitely had a bit of a, like, Team Kamiko thing going on. And then for him to come out and win the guineas like that, um, yeah, it was just, it was great. I thought it was a brilliant performance, obviously a track record time. I think he he ran through the line brilliantly. He didn't have the clearest of runs. It was a lovely ride by Sheen, clearly incredibly well thought of, which is what we're seeing more of with him, with him as a jockey. He's just a very thought out rider. Um, and he knew who he wanted to follow. He know, knew where he wanted to be in the race. Yes, it didn't all go to plan, but it all came off in the end. And I think you'd agree, you've obviously spent plenty of time over here in England. And for that team, there's a real goodwill feeling behind them, behind um, Sheikh Farhad, behind David Redvers, the Tween Hill setup. They've invested a lot, as you well know, into sponsorship over here, into breeding, into buying, into the sales ring. And they've been in this game a decade now. It doesn't seem like that. We sort of look at Sheikh Farhad and still see him as quite a newcomer to um, the sort of racing game in a funny way. But he's been around for 10 years and what a deserved success for him and his team, I felt. Yeah, tremendous support he's given the industry over the years. I could never be underestimated. And I think the point you were making about Pinatubo is something that actually Nick Luck was talking about with um, Charlie Appleby on Luck on Sunday as well, saying, is that the sort of the case? Now, I think Charlie Appleby, obviously being Charlie Appleby, I think he sort of was like, yeah, yeah, that could definitely be the case. I mean, he came out of it well, and we're going to look at other things. So he wasn't really downbeat about it. Going back to Andrew Bolding's stable. Now, this is their first Guineas winner. I think someone was saying that um, there hasn't been a Guineas winner coming out of Kingsclear since 1916, 
or something. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think it was around then. Yeah. I amazing. Mean, incredible. Yeah, just amazing for him. Obviously, he follows in his father's footsteps. I think whenever you're following a father who trained and had such great success, there's definitely a level of pressure. We see that across the industry. Joseph O'Brien, Donica O'Brien with Aiden. We see it with the Hannans, Richard Hannan Jr., Richard Hannan Sr., and Charlie Hills. You know, across like across the board, you know, sons and daughters follow on and train racehorses and then have to bear the burden of their parents in a way than the pressure that comes with it. Um, but I think it's been, you know, Andrew Balding has not only kept the standard incredibly high coming out of Kingsclear, but he's upped it in some ways. You know, he's had a continuously good years. He's a very good trainer. He's got a brilliant team behind him. Annalise Balding, his partner, is obviously very heavily involved. Um, their development of jockeys, how they run the place down there is incredible. Um, but for them to have a 2,000 guineas winner, I, I think it'll take them a while for it to sink in. I mean, I know he's delighted afterwards in all the post-race interviews, but I honestly got the impression from Andrew Balding that it was a bit like oh my god <laughs> like this has happened um so I hope they have time to enjoy it and what a star they've got and Andrew's just a pleasure to deal with in anything that you do with him you know he's a real gent and um it's a traditional setup down there but just rewards for I think just an extremely professional outfit and, you know, when you were talking to them pre and post race about Kamiko, Kameko, I can't remember which way we're saying it now. <laughs> I'm um, saying Kamiko, I don't know what it actually is. <laughs> it's a turtle, isn't it? But I'm going to roll with Kamiko if you're rolling with Kamiko. Let's go with that. <laughs> I don't know. What if I'm wrong now? <laughs> no, we'll roll with it. It's fine. Um, but no, I just. I just think they've got a real star on their hands. I think it's fabulous that, you know, the whole connection, Andrew Balding, it's like it's almost the mini fairy tale. You know, Andrew Balding set Asheen Murphy off on his path, nurtured that talent. They have a great relationship. Andrew Balding is extremely close with David Revver's Qatar Racing's racing manager, obviously, and as a result, Sheikh Farhad. Sheikh Farhad's had horses with him for years. Um then the horse coming from America, coming from Keeneland and being um, obviously from the same sire as Roaring Lion, who they tragically lost last year. And Kittens Joy, just for those that don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, yes. Um, but, you know, that, that whole Roaring Lion last year, I cannot emphasize what a tragedy that was for their team obviously it would have been a tragedy for anybody's team but for them in particular they love that horse like a pet I know people say that um kind of maybe haphazardly a little bit but I'd know David Rev was quite well in the Tween Hills team and for them Roaring Lion was their everything and so for that to happen to them last year was just honestly it was just devastating I interviewed David Redvers at um Doncaster Sales about a good couple of weeks after the news had come through that they had lost Roaring Lion and he I couldn't get through the interview without him crying it was just awful and for them then to have Kamiko this year come out and win a 2000 guineas and the whole story it's just brilliant and I'm delighted for them and I hope they go to the derby what do you think of that Naomi? I was going to ask you about this because I saw that you reacted to Andrew Balding saying, well, I'd like to go to the Derby, but I'm not sure David Redvers is as keen keeping an eye sort of on 
posting him as a, an attractive breeding prospect for a second career, saying, you know, basically implicating that breeders don't want a Derby winner. And you were like, excuse me? <laughs> uh-uh, honey. Come on now. Back in your box. I'm not having a month of Sundays. <laughs> I don't- so basically, for yeah, for anyone that didn't know, Andrew Baldwin came out and basically said what Naomi just said. He just said, you know, I'd be keen to go to the derby. Sheikh Farhad, I think, is a sportsman. He'd be keen to go to the derby. I'm worried David Revers, as racing manager, doesn't want to go. Um, he said, you know, I'm worried he doesn't want to go because I, I, he's worried what breeders will think of a derby winner. I think that was the exact quote. And I was like, what, what, what is this all about? So I slightly pulled David's leg about it on Twitter and he got a fair bit of abuse as well from other people because of course for traditionalists a derby winner is the peak of a stallion that's a stallion making race that is what makes a stallion so but it's a rumbling concern over here in Europe that we're going down the speed route that horses are being retired early and prematurely because there's a need for sort of and it's a very loose term but this whole cheap speed idea um now obviously Kamiko isn't that but um the idea that a derby win would affect negatively a horse's stallion career is just like what but I think actually in hindsight what David meant was you know if he doesn't stay the trip of the derby because there is some mixed breeding in that department stamina versus speed if he doesn't stay the trip of the derby how will that affect i guess kind of the rest of his season and how it, he is viewed as a stallion when they do retire him which i do understand i don't think he meant if he wins the derby i think obviously if he wins the derby he's an even better stallion prospect but anyway either way i'd love to see him going there when you watch that race back he really He's a horse that, A, Kamiko for me, has that real, well, obviously has the speed and guts to win a classic over a mile. But when he goes through the line, you know, he's he's learning all the time still. And with a better trip, I think he handled the dip well. I don't. I wouldn't be concerned about, obviously, there is a concern of the Epsom trap with all the runners. But for me, it wouldn't be a major concern for him. Of course, the trip would be a question mark, but you've got to try. The way he ran through the line, the way he stretches out, his action, the way he puts his head down, even the way he's built. I, oh, I, hope, they, I hope they give him a sporting chance and put him in the derby. I'd love to see him in there. Um, and, you know, I think it's fair to say he will not lose anything in defeat if he doesn't stay a mile and a half at Epsom and drops back to 10 furlongs or a mile later in his career. I mean, it, that happens plenty. Well, sort of turning the argument on its head here, you, you were saying that, you know, maybe it will take away from him in terms of uh, breeding income if he then goes to the Derby and doesn't perform well. But if you're going from the argument of people wanting speed, perhaps that doesn't take that much away from him because they'll just say, well, he was a brilliant record time guineas winner. Well, he just doesn't stay a mile and a half. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I think that is how breeders would view it. Um, you can't take that time away from him now, you know, in, in the guineas. He, he's, it's in the record books. He's won a guineas in course record time. He also won a group one as a two-year-old. Um, you know, he's, he definitely doesn't lack speed. Um, for me, as a bit of a traditionalist, 
the ultimate racehorse is a horse that has that speed and stamina. And for me, that sort of classic series, I know it's slightly going out of fashion. I know over here, you know, our Triple Crown of a Guineas, a Derby and a St. Ledger is something that A, just isn't tried anymore. You know, it's just not attempted these days as much. The St. Ledger has gone completely out of fashion. And I guess people are worried that the Derby is going to go that way, although I really hope and think it won't. Um, very recently, I can recommend to US viewers, um, there's a brilliant documentary on the Jinsky, who's, of course, the last Triple Crown winner over here. Um, it's called A Horse Called the Jinsky, and you can buy it on Amazon. I actually bought it. It's an hour-long documentary who follows Najinsky through his 1970 season winning the Triple Crown. His campaign was extraordinary, and it's one you wouldn't hear of happening now. He won a Guineas. He won a, let me get this right, he won an Irish derby, an English derby, a King George. He won a St. Ledger as his prep race for an arc. And he got touched by a short head in the Arc de Triomphe. I mean, you just imagine that now, Naomi, like that just would not happen. Two derbies, so two derbies or two guineas, two derbies, a guineas, a King George just thrown in the middle there for good luck type of uh, St. Ledger as your prep run for an Arc de Triomphe. Get, I mean, you couldn't make it up and it wouldn't happen now. Um, but anyway, when you watch that documentary, it's extraordinary. I highly recommend it. But it really took me back to the old days of how horses were campaigned. And we've definitely gone down a different route now. You know, I think generally if a horse is a miler, it, it generally stays in that mile category. But I just I hope bringing it back to Kamiko, I hope that they I hope that they give him a chance in the derby and I think it's a win-win for them. If he wins, it's brilliant. And if he doesn't win and he doesn't stay, or for whatever reason, they just go back to a mile and they've got a top-class horse. That kind of nearly goes back to a horse devaluing if they, you know, lose their unbeaten streak. Now, that's not the case with Kamiko, but in general, if they have a sort of a bad run, possibly breeders not being as keen on them anymore, and hence people perhaps being more careful with the placement of their horses. Yeah, I guess so. I think for me, the unbeaten run thing is I really sit on the fence with that because obviously you've got the exceptions with the actual unbeatables, the likes of Frankl. <laughs> um, but generally, if you're looking to look after an unbeaten run, you're not going to take the chances you need to take to make a champion. That would be my view. Um, you know, to make a champion like, say, Najinsky, you know, they have to be pushed out of their comfort zone. They have to be tried over further. They have to show more than just what they're comfortable at. Of course, you can have, and I'm talking a champion. I'm not just talking a very good racehorse. I'm talking a champion. I think, you know, the really good ones you see, you know, show guts, proper guts over a trip that they didn't like or a track that they don't appreciate or ground that they don't go well on. I think, to be a real champion, you have to throw them out of their comfort zone. And if they lose their unbeaten record in that process, you know, is it the end of the world? I personally don't think it should be. And I don't think it is for many breeders. Now, quickly getting back to, you mentioned this a lot earlier. We're, we're diverting off topic here greatly. I think we can go for about an hour just on a single topic. But um, going back to Asheen Murphy, this was his first classic winner, as you mentioned, Andrew Balding. 
done a brilliant job educating young young jockeys. Um, what are your thoughts on how he's been doing so far? The ultimate professional. I love how he's also some form of a spokesperson nowadays on social media for horse racing, really explaining things to people and being so incredibly patient. Yeah, I think he is brilliant. It probably goes without saying. Um, you know, he rode, was it three or four winners over the New Market weekend? And he rode two winners from the front with Dashing Willoughby, and then he got in traffic with Kamiko and still won anyway. You know, he's brilliant tactically in a race he like I said before he thinks about everything you know I know from interviewing him his form analysis his ability to read a race his in-depth knowledge of the actual form of any horse he's riding is second to none um you know he puts me to shame when I'm interviewing him he can I'm like oh right yes no it does need to come you know, he knows more than most of us will know, will ever know, I would imagine. I think he's got a brilliant brain on him, you know, he's old head on young shoulders. I think, you know, it's funny, he's of, he's clearly um, at the very top already and he's probably going to be around at the very top for a long time. It's interesting, he gets compared a lot to Frankie Dettori over here, which I just couldn't think is more wrong because everyone's worried when Frankie retires, you know, Frankie's 50 this year, when he retires, um, you know, who's going to take over? Who's going to be that jockey in England or based in England that really reaches out wider than our racing bubble, which, as we all know, is what Frankie Dettori does. For me personally, you know, Asheen isn't there yet. He doesn't have that real... You know, Frankie is a complete one-off, and I don't think we should be comparing Asheen or anyone to Frankie. I don't, you know, I'm not sure we will get a replacement, in inverted commas, for Frankie, because that is probably unachievable. He's a complete one in a million. Um, but Asheen, and Asheen is just a completely different character, you know, everyone can see that. But as a spokesperson, that word you used, you know, the way he's been using social media, I don't know if it's all his own ideas or if he's got a bit of management help or if someone's advising him in some way, professional or friendly, I, I genuinely don't know. But if anyone um, over there in the States goes through Asheen Murphy's Twitter feed now, you'll see some brilliant feedback of his two-year-old rides from the Friday of the Newmarket meeting. He just rattles through them. It's the simplest bit of footage you could watch. You know, it's just a phone and a selfie video. And he's saying, I wrote this two-year-old, that two-year-old. Here's what I'll do differently next time. But it's a great insight. You probably know, well, you do, obviously, Naomi, you do know how, you know, many jockeys in England, I think, specifically maybe um are quite coy about how they've ridden the horse about a mistake they may have made or about the ride in which they've given a horse good or bad you know they they don't like there's not sort of how do I put it there's not a sort of openness about criticism in the UK and Ireland when it comes to jockeys rides it's something as broadcasters we sort of have to tiptoe around a little bit whereas I think um Asheen just by sort of like that rattling through his rides in a in a selfie video the other day is sort of tackling that himself you know I didn't give this the best ride I did give that a good ride I could have done this differently or whatever he might be saying I'm hoping that that might break down a few barriers in a way um just because you can admit you didn't give a horse a perfect ride none of us are perfect Jesus we wouldn't be doing it half as you know so I think the fact that he's tackling that head on is a brilliant thing. Brilliant. 
Yeah, I'm hoping that that will open doors for other juggers to possibly be more reflective in a, a more open way, as you mentioned. I'm not sure if in the United States we're a little bit better at that. I do know there's a certain amount of broadcasters that don't shy away from criticizing Riza. I find it hard myself. I tiptoe around it as well because I know that, for example, on course, the jockeys are listening. I like them. I'd like to speak with them in an interview after the race. If I'm going to say, well, you know, this isn't this, that was an absolutely terrible ride. They will probably be quite insulted with me saying so. So it's a, it's a very sort of fine line to thread. But before we move on, I quickly wanted to highlight, we mentioned it before, record time for the guineas. Now, Frankel's guineas time was one minute, 37 seconds and 30. So one thirty-seven and uh, one, as we would say in the American terms, Camigo's time was one thirty-four and three, which is just mind-blowingly fast. Now, was the track playing that fast, or what was going on here? Well, look, there's definitely no denying that we've had a very dry spring. Obviously, they watered the track and it was perfect on the day. But I would have said underneath that top of the ground, I'm sure it was fairly rattling fast. I'm sure it was fast. You know, I'm sure it was on the fast side. Um, so I think that probably did play into account. Also, obviously, I wasn't there at Newmarket. But um, as you well know from standing at Newmarket on that track, on the Rolly Mile track, the wind has a huge effect there's a, there can be a really strong headwind. There can be a really s- strong sort of sidewind. That always has an effect on the times at Newmarket, obviously. Um, so I don't know if that helped on the day, if it was in a positive sense or if there was no wind at all. But it was an extraordinary fast time. Um, I suppose it was a good race and, you know, they all jumped well. Well, except a few, actually. But, um, yeah, scary fast i guess in a way but um probably conditions conditions must have helped that just one way or another they must have done but when you're not there and um you know you don't know about the wind and all those sort of factors it's hard to kind of get a guide on that but like i said before it's in the record books now it's not going to go anywhere it's amazing <laughs> yeah just for those that um, have never been to newmarket to the rolling mile highly recommend everyone going and it is wide open. It's just a fast place. Do you recommend goes to the Rolling Mile? Really? Yeah. No. I mean, how cool is that? It's beautiful. I okay, Newmarket. That's just visiting Newmarket and going through. I mean, okay, July course is much more sort of character with the beautiful trees and the. I know, but if you're going, I mean, the Guinness is at the Rolling Mile. You want to go to that meeting, don't you? I would. I'm not gonna lie to you. That Newmarket course and the July and um, and the Rolling Mile track in general, yeah. If any of you American racing people are coming over to England, I'll take you somewhere better than there for a race day experience, I'm afraid. <laughs> I just, okay, I where would you take I, them? I, I don't mean to sound offensive. I, I'm not. It's a brilliant track. It's where numerous high-class group one animals have performed and put in some brilliant performances. And, for you know, there is a real sort of um, – there's a I can't really think of the word there's I love the dip you know in the bushes and how you can run into the dip and how the horses handle the dip and come out of it I love that factor I love how wide across the track they can be there's lots of good things there, and of course they run the classics there and it, it's it is a high class track I think it can be a very um open expanse of a track <laughs> and for me personally it's definitely not one of my favorite race courses in the world would you not? Would you take Ascot over there, over the Rolly Mile? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go to one race course in the UK, or every, everyone wants to go to Royal Ascot. That's like, all my American friends are like, so this year I can't go to Royal Ascot because, you know, this year. But next year I'm going to try and go. So, yeah, yeah. But, no, I like... Okay, you know why I like the Rolling Mile? Because when I was temporarily in Newmarket with the Flying Star, I used to go running on all the gallops. I used to go run on Warren Hill, like, next to the gallops down the grass. also went running all the way to the Rolling Mile. And it's just such a vast space i thought it was really cool and like you said the dip the bushes everything so may- maybe i'm just a weird lover of all the sort of classic english race courses no i hear you look i hear you i hear you and of course like i say we've seen some brilliant performances on that track so i'm not taking away from it too much <laughs> all right let's move on to uh the other guineas race a thousand guineas for the Phillies, won by Love, which gave perennial leading sire Galileo his 84th group slash grade one winner, which is just an incredible amount. And of course, Aidan O'Brien, um, you know, you can't ever go wrong. Talking about Daz, you were saying if you want to step into the footsteps of someone like Aidan O'Brien, would you want him as your dad? Because I think I'd be very intimidated. <laughs> Honestly, those that family is just um, incredible in general. I mean, Aidan O'Brien being the genius that he is, um, there's just so many strands there because his four kids are all very different as far as I can tell, all just brilliant and kind and <laughs> clever. And you think, God, you know, that is one hell of a family. I mean, they they, they breed, uh, I mean, they race sort of pedigree pace throughout the absolute <laughs> highest draw. But then themselves, I mean, I don't think it gets much better on pedigree than the O'Brien family because they're just, yeah, they're just they're just a brilliant family. And now Dunica training as well. Um, it'd be really interesting to see how he gets on. Obviously, a very sort of strange start to his training career with everything that's happened. Um, but just... Joseph, I was up on the hill with Joseph um, a few weeks ago now. It must have been pre-lockdown, so a few months ago now. Um, and it was the first time I'd vid- visited his training operation on what they call the hill in Tipperary. Um, and just blown away again by sort of the meticulous nature of how he trains. He's obviously taken so much from his dad, but as well, he's doing his own thing. You know, he's his own man. He's doing his own thing. He trains in his own way. Um, I think it'd be very easy for people from the outside to think that Joseph and Donica will just be sort of segments of their dad's training establishment in a way, you know, and not be their own entities. But I can reassure, well, from being on the hill with Joseph, he's very much his own person doing his own thing. Um, Of course, he's been in the privileged position and taken um, so much from his dad already. But I guess you know, his achievements will be his own achievements in his own right. And same same applies for Donica. And then Sarah O'Brien, the eldest daughter, she's a trained as a vet. She's incredibly intelligent and fully involved. And then Anna O'Brien, as far as I can tell, I think she's very heavily involved in the breeding side. You know, obviously we often see um, horses running under from Aiden's stable, bred by his wife. And I think his daughter is now heavily involved in the breeding as well. So, no, they're a brilliant family, and he's trained yet another classic winner with yet another Galileo offspring in love. I mean, just remarkable. When I was looking down through the um, declared runners for both the guineas, you know, there was only one Galileo offspring in there, and that was love. 
There was no Galileos in the 2000 guineas. I think, I hope I'm right in saying this. And there was only one in the 1000 guineas and that was love. And she went and won as she did. Um, I would be worried about that 1000 guineas form in general, not about the winner. I think the winner's very good, but the form in general, um, it was, a, for me, it was, it was a very, as they both were actually, both classics were wide open and horses in there that went off at big odds with sort of long shot chances. And I'm all for horses running in these races if they can. And, you know, the potential for getting a bit of black type on the page is huge, but the form of that 1000 guineas, I'd be interesting in time to look back and see how it's, stacks up um but as for the winner you know she was much one of the more experienced horses in the race coming into it from her two-year-old campaign um sorry phone phone issue there um and you know she went away from well the third horse quadrilateral was i i i'm a sucker for a chestnut filly <laughs> just am so i was i was really and i really i thought quadrilateral last year was a very raw item and I thought she was going to really progress and train on this year. And I still retain that hope. Um, she obviously went off favourite in the end for the 1,000 guineas and didn't deliver. Um, meanwhile, Love, another chestnut filly, goes and does what she did. I mean, brilliant breeding. You know, out of a pivotal mare by Galileo. Pivotal, obviously, a huge broodmare sire over here in the UK. Um, so that line, that page, that the whole her actual dam was a very average racehorse. Um, I don't know if you saw some of that um, sort of information on Twitter and things, but she was a very average racehorse, but she's bred beautifully and being by pivotal. And then that cross into Galileo is a real classic um, pedigree cross and it's come to fruition with love. And now you see, she's one that with her breeding, you would be hopeful that the Oaks is going to suit her down to the ground. It looks like that'll be her next target um so yeah uh like i say not as keen on the form of the race the 1000 guineas but by no means taking away from the winner and very much looking forward to her going forwards yeah i thought she was very impressive really cruised up that hill like she was it looked visu visually like she was accelerating up that hill when everyone else was getting tired yeah yeah, I would agree with that. And obviously the way she ran through the line, like you've mentioned there, and the way she was at the end of the race is what's giving everyone so much hope that she's going to go on to the Oaks. And of course, that's a path well trodden by the Bally Doyle inmates. Um, if you're by Galileo and you win a Guineas, you tend to go on to Epsom, which is what Love's going to do. So they know that path well. And she takes her training well, clearly. She looks to have a great sort of outlook on life. We saw that last year, and then we've definitely saw that again in the pictures around the guineas win, even pre and post race. There were some lovely pictures of her going down to post. She was just taking it all in her stride. And then post race, the same. I think one thing that really sticks with me about, um, you know, when you hear Aiden talk about Galileo's and the offspring, look, we've, I'm sure this has been covered multiple times, but one of their biggest attributes, not, it isn't just, the fact that they're incredibly high class and good racehorses with a huge engine, but it's their attitudes towards life. It's how they take training. It's how they take racing. They've just got this unbelievable constitution. And Aiden's often said it, that Galileo's would run through a brick wall for you. They just are bred to want to win. And they all seem to have that in them. And you saw that in her. 
you know, and you see that in her just by looking at her, like I say, pre and post pictures. For me, she's just she really inherits that Galileo constitution, and hopefully that'll carry that'll carry her through to an Oaks. You know, win, lose or draw. Training wise, with this funny season, there's a nice gap. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be very interesting. But I'd be very keen on her for the Oaks, which is I think what the betting has suggested. And just quickly talking about how Aidan prepares his runners for the Oaks and the Epsom Derby. Um, I got the pleasure of going to Ballydoy. I'm assuming you might have uh, been inside their gates as well. No, I've been to Coolmore a couple of times and sort of driven past the gates of Ballydoyle. And just one way or another, I've never I've never actually been. I I went, we went to interview Dunica on a very rainy day. I did actually drive in, so I lie, I did drive in, but it was on an afternoon, like it wasn't for a training thing. It was, it was just a sit down interview. Um, and I drove into sort of one of the many houses, offices, nice rooms. I don't really know where I was. And I sat down, and we did this interview, and I left again. I felt like I'd gone into sort of like military base camp. I was like, okay, see you well, later. That, their security is incredible. So I was, not there for a training morning, I wish. We were allowed to be in there to just look at their facilities in the afternoon. So we all got passes and got ushered into like a bus. This was with the Godolphin Flying Start. I do believe we were the first every year that was allowed inside Ballydor. And it, it, just seeing the facilities he had. And obviously, so he's mimicked a lot of the big race courses in terms of like the Ascot Strait, the Epsom Bend. He's mimicked that in his training facilities, which... Aside from the fact that Aidan O'Brien is a genius as a trainer and could prepare prepare his horses for anything, this helps so much that he can give his three-year-old Colts and Phillies that experience of going around that bend, that sort of reverse camber, I think it is. It has like a sort of slope downwards instead of the other way up, which we normally see, for example, at American racetracks, that they're slightly sloped upwards, the bend, that really gives that horse a good footing to go around it. It's the opposite at Epsom and he can really prepare them for that which I'm thinking probably gives him a little bit of an edge oh I think hugely I think a lot of their gallops and their infrastructure actually comes from Vincent before them as well I think part of that was all his idea of um, putting in the Ballydoyle yeah the Tattenham corner basically is what they've put in and then putting in that Epsom home straight I think I'm right in saying it came from Vincent, but either way, they've obviously developed it hugely. And now, like you say, they've got like a, um, they've got everything they'll need for any race course, essentially. But I guess it must be a huge help to be able to train a horse round the Tatman Corner type at home. You know, it's, it, you're, you, you've ridden show jumpers, eventers, I'm sure, and a bit come from other areas of the sort of equestrian world. You know, taking that into consideration you wouldn't jump a horse um down a line of bounces in a competition if you hadn't done it at home and i guess it's a bit the same with a racehorse like would you um you know you need to get as much you need to cover as many bases as you possibly can and i guess that that's what aiden does in his training is it's like why expect them to gallop round tatnam corner when they've never tried it before at home you know you've got to give them a taste for it and so he's got the luxury of having that, yeah, at Ballydoyle, which is absolutely amazing. And it must be a huge, huge help. It must also be a huge help, don't forget, that, um, like I mentioned, with love and the Galileo angle, it's a well-trodden path. 
you know, he, he's he's trained those sort of horses to win those sort of classics during their three-year-old campaign, year in, year out, year in, year out. Now, every horse is different, of course, and I'm sure he adapts his training accordingly. But what I'm saying is he 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 knows how to do it. You know, he's not just stabbing in the dark. He know there must be a process in place. He knows how to win an Oaks and a Derby. Yes, he follows that pretty regimentedly. And so he's streets ahead of the rest in, in many areas, but that experience must stand him in such good stead. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, get going on the Royal Ascot meeting because otherwise we'll, ne we'll never get finished. Uh, let's start. Up. We'll, we're not going to dive into these races, but I just wanted to note for everyone that there are six added races, which is the Buckingham Palace Handicap, the Silver Royal Hunt Cup, the Silver Wokingham Handicap, the Copper Horse Handicap, the Golden Gate Handicap and the Palace of Holyrood House Handicap. And I was told that all these names were approved by uh, Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> it's her meeting after all uh, what are your quick thoughts on adding six races um i guess it kind of is a umbrella thought about the whole season and how the bha have tackled the whole race schedule and the planning it must have been a bloody nightmare to be honest with you get racing back on trying to get the pattern in some sort of shape trying to get royal ascot without moving it around the classics i mean imagine the pain that they've had to go through to get to this point so there was so many different rumors going around about whether we'd have a reduced royal ascot never mind an extended one about whether we wouldn't have any two-year-old races and we'd only have the older horse group ones you know there was loads of different rumors in the mill and the fact that this has been the outcome um it's it's good so I hope I stick with it going forwards because everyone wants more races on a race day. You know, you obviously have huge race cards over in America, um, in in the UK and Ascot. It's a six seven race card, and you know, extending that out might be something they stick with going forwards. But just for this year, credit to them. And if those are the races they needed to sort of slot into the pattern and try and give everyone a chance, then brilliant. Well done them. It's obviously going to be different from any other year. But I think we really have to um, make the best of it is what I would, you know, I'm keen for everyone to go into next week with a positive outlook and appreciate what others have done to get this meeting on. Well, I dare say that there will be a lot of people watching from home because unfortunately, of course, we can't attend. But uh, let's start with the Group 1 Queen Anne Stakes on the Tuesday over a mile four-year-olds and upwards. I just looked at the betting market, which threw up a fair few um, good horses, King of Change, Circus Maximus, Ben Battle, Persian King. First thoughts on this race for you? Um, <laughs> I feel like it's going to be a kind of uh, continuous threat, but um, just I suppose just to not repeat it and to say it once, all these races are wide open and are completely thrown sort of disarray with a lack of runs and a lack of form to go on uh so you just have to take um uh the queen anne stakes king of change currently tops the betting obviously was a bit of a surprise winner at the big mile race at last time at ascot at the back end of the season on champions day uh i was really interested to see persian king in there obviously a huge big white hope in france for andre Fab and the godolphin team last year won the French 2,000 guineas and then got beat by Sotsas in the French derby and then was never seen again, which was a real surprise for many. Um, 
word on the street with him has been a little bit in and out, like heard rumours, but definitely nothing concrete and nothing to report. Um, the fact that he is priced up in here at 10 to 1 was of interest because, of course, obviously he won his guineas over a mile, but he stepped up in trip. And I think the step up in trip was a bit of a unknown. And now if they do run him here, they're obviously going to campaign him as an older horse over the mile trip. He would be of huge interest. A concern would be we obviously watched a lot of French racing over here whilst the English racing wasn't on. And Andre Fard's horses did all come on for the run. And he definitely went through a bit of a, um, you know, a lot of his horses were coming out first time and just needing the run, just having a bit of a trial, a bit of a gentle time of it. That would, I guess, be a concern, but he's the master. And I would suggest that if he's bringing a horse over for the Queen Anne, like Persian King, who's clearly had his problems because we haven't seen him in over a year, uh, I'd say he'll be ready to rock and roll, would be my guess. Um, obviously, Godolphin also had Barney Roy in there and Ben Battle and a few others, but Persian King was definitely one that bounced out for me. Circus Maximus as well. Um, he looks like he'll definitely, he, he's a definite runner. So if you want confirmation, I suppose that's, that's, um, good to hear we know that he's going to run if as long as nothing as long as there's no setback um Aiden's update on him was obviously last year he won the St James's Palace and won it well and then thereafter they campaigned him as well if they what he was saying is that they experimented with trips last year and then now they've settled on a mile for him and um, in an interview that was recently done, Kevin Blake asked him, now that you've settled on a mile as the trip for Circus Maximus, you know, will conditioning him to the mile trip solely bring out some improvement in him? And basically, I think the answer was essentially yes, to sort of paraphrase, because now they've settled on that, they can just train him purely as the miler. Um, and it is it did look to be his trip last year. Obviously, he had blinkers applied for the first time, and that definitely helped him. I think he's a very lazy worker, and so I think they think that maybe he wants further and how he's bred, but actually he keeps proving that his best form is at the mile. So those are the two horses that jumped out of me. King of Change, like I said, for me, he was a bit of a – that race last year, the one the group one that he won at Ascot, he – I'm not – I – I'd want to see him do it again. I'd want to see him do it again. And for me, there's others in the betting that um, would be of more interest. And yeah, Persian King definitely and Circus Maximus were two that jumped out at me. Yeah, and Circus Maximus actually beat King of Change last year as well in the St. James Palace. So it'd be an interesting one to see them go at each other again. Uh, I thought it was interesting Barney Roy was in here because he did race this year. He won the Group 1 Jebel Hatta uh, at Maiden over Mal and a furlong on the turf. Obviously, before that was, uh, what is that, Super Saturday? So that was three, four weeks before the World Cup meeting, the Dubai World Cup meeting that got cancelled. Um, for those that don't know, tell the story about that he went to stud and he came back. <laughs> Yeah, basically, it was a very high-class miler, wasn't he? Um, and then he was retired to stud at the end of his three-year-old campaign, it must have been. I think, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it was. Um, yeah, and so he's a high-class miler, had shown very good form um, and, you know, was completely a stud. You know, we knew he was going to go and stand at stud. Then he's proven to be partially infertile, I believe is the line. I think that's the line. And so they brought him back into training. And often with that, when that happens, um, they're not the same. They're not the same horse because obviously they've dropped down into being a stallion for some um, time. 
whether it be a short amount of time or a long amount of time, it's obviously a completely different sort of, um, it's a complete career change in a way. <laughs> and so it's hard to get them back into being those race fit athletes after they have visited, uh, you know, gone to stud for some time. Um, anyway, he's managed to come back. And like you say, he's, he's won out in Maidan a couple of times. And he's, yeah, he's, he's proved that he's back to his very best. He's been impressive. So he's, he's, I wonder if, I mean, he'd be an obvious, of, of those good Olfin horses, Ben Battle, Barney Roy, Persian King. Barney Roy would be the obvious one, yet he's the biggest price on my anti post betting. So that's a bit of a surprise in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's actually a few races we'll get to them that some of the pricing I kind of questioned. And I thought, okay, this is a huge price for a horse that has definitely got a chance in here. But of course, anti-post betting, I, I do think that once the fields come out, it's going to be looking very differently. So I just use them as a guideline to at least have done some form per race. But let's move on to the Group 1 King Stand Stakes, five furlong, three-year-olds and upwards on Tuesday as well. I keep wanting to say Grade 1. This is horrendous. This is so American of me. <laughs> You've changed, Naomi. You've changed. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah the group one kings and stakes for the rattling five furlong horses um at the moment there's joint top favorites with batash and skeptical skeptical um for dennis hogan who we saw when at mace yesterday and listed stakes there um what a phenomenal performance that was what a story that is picked up for 2800 quid is now four from five goes into a group one at ascot as a joint favorite it's just a complete fairy tale for anyone who hasn't heard of Dennis Hogan over in America. Um, it's probably a name you're going to hear a hell of a lot more about. He's a trainer based in Ireland. Um, and he's got an expanding yard. He started out from scratch with relatively small numbers and now has a pretty decent establishment. Um, he's becoming essentially famous for picking out horses from other yards and improving them into group horses, basically. Um, he had Make a Challenge last year, which was a huge story going to Ascot and uh, was a very similar story, picked up as um, a bit of a flop and then uh, he's improved at no end and it ended up in a group one. He's done the same, essentially, with Skeptical, who hadn't run, but yeah, picked it up out of the sale, out of Goffs, I think it was. And here he is with a live challenge going to the King stand. And he'd be my selection here because he's had that run. He's had the benefit of a run, which I think is going to be huge. Of course, what you have with, when they have had the benefit of the run with these Irish horses and this theme will continue throughout this conversation is it's going to be very tight with the backup. So, you know, he's run yesterday and the King stand is next Tuesday. So he's got a week to recover. Um, but those sprinters often can, you know, you see that with the sprinters more so than the, um, you know, longer distance horses. And for me, he looks the type that will bounce back, I think, just fine. And if they bring him over and if all goes well, um, that benefit of a run fitness wise, sharpness wise, you know, with those sprinters, they've just got to be so sharp. You know, it's real marginal gains with them. And I just think for me, um, yeah, he's he's on the improve. He's improved yet again. And he comes here with a huge, huge chance. And what do you think of Batash then, the six-year-old Charlie Hills? He just keeps he just keeps finding, doesn't he? He just keeps going and keeps performing. I remember when he won the uh, Prix de la Baie uh, 2017 at Shanti because I was there for the arc that year. Yeah, for, uh, Batash, he, he's a kind of, 
he's I don't want to say he's unreliable because he's not anymore. He's actually not unreliable. He always runs a good race. Um, obviously, in his early days, it was well documented that he wasn't the easiest horse to look after, you know, pre, post-race, but also training. He wasn't the easiest horse. Um, and we've seen that with him on the race course when he's got over the top. We've seen that happen at York a couple of times and in various different circumstances for him. He obviously is a horse who mentally does need to be looked after. Um, but as a result, it, when you look through his record, it looks, you know, it, it looks a touch hit and miss in places. But when he's on form and he puts in his best, his best tooth forward, so to speak, he is he's put in some scintillating displays and some displays of speed that you just tend not to see over here in the UK. Um, so he's an incredibly special horse. I think I'm really smitten with sceptical. So um heart overhead with it a little bit because of course Batash is a proven group one sprinter and skeptical isn't at this stage so on that basis they're joint favorites you may feel that there's more value in Batash but for me um I just I guess I want to see him on a going day I guess I want to see him um you know with the right mindset again and come out and deliver again basically as a now five-year-old did you say he was yeah five-year-old six-year-old i think yeah you know six yeah yeah so yeah that would be where my head was would be at but again it's sort of very tentative at this stage and the king stand in general is a race i've never had any luck in so <laughs> actually but well yeah. before we move on i'll quickly mention one of the wesley ward horses in there because obviously great interest um from the united states and however wesley is going to how wesley's going to perform which horses as he's been bringing over now I had sort of a tentative list of horses he was bringing over which is uh kamari bound for nowhere and then a couple of two-year-olds flying aletha golden pal sheriff bianco possibly fauci with a couple of question marks behind it love that name obviously named after dr fauci in relation to the uh coronavirus briefings and everything that was going on but just wanted to touch upon bound for nowhere who is supposedly pointed at the uh, king stand sakes he's uh he was third in a diamond jubilee in 2019 uh, no sorry 2018 i think he was down to field last year excuse me and then he was second in return to the track in a great the grade three san simeon simon i don't know how to pronounce it at santa anita park over five and a half furlong on the turf this year he'd been off the track for 273 days before that so very intrigued to see how this is going to play i know that wesley had sent his horses over on plane and had staff already situated in the uk to look after them at least this is according to uh luck on sunday again he keeps give, giving me all this great insight yeah giving you great insight indeed um i guess he bound for nowhere is an interesting one because basically keep bringing him over rascal because he ran yeah like you say he ran in the commonwealth cup he ran in a diamond jubilee last year when he was 13th and then in the middle bit he was third behind merchant navy again in the diamond jubilee stakes so he is a regular at ascot um coming over for a fourth time but dropping down in trip it looks like for the king stand which obviously isn't the way most horses go as they get older they tend to get a touch slower but he's proved himself this season like you said over that five furlong trip so far when we saw when you guys saw him over america so 
interesting that that does seem to be the race that Wesley's flagged up for him. And I just love that he's a horse that, yeah, Wesley's happy to keep bringing over and he's hit the crossbar a few times. So he'd deserve a win, but I do think this is going to be a deep enough race for him, you know. I mean, those those sprints, you need all the luck in the world anyway. But, um, yeah, I think this is going to be a deep race and he's a fairly big price for a horse that we know does can act on the track. Yes, that 13th last year wasn't ideal, but it wasn't a perfect run. Um, whereas the other two performances are good. You know, that Merchant Navy run was very good. Commonwealth Cup run, decent. And now, like I say, dropping back in trip. Yeah, I've, I found him at 20 to 1, which is definitely a fair bit of value to at least use him underneath. And a lot of people in the United States are very big fans of those exotic type bets that you're looking at your one, two, threes. So it'll be definitely and a horse to keep an eye on. So let's move on to the Wednesday uh, group on Prince of Wales stakes, 10 furlong, four year olds and upwards. Favorite in my books was Japan, the four year old Galileo again, Aiden Moore, uh, Aiden, Aiden Moore. I put that down, Aiden O'Brien and Ryan Moore. That's uh, my way of putting down um, trainers and jockeys quickly. Uh, last year's Jodmont International winner. Yeah, and also, um, well, again, actually, I should say that this information is coming from an interview Kevin Blake did for Sky Sports Racing quite recently with Aidan O'Brien. Um, and he talked about a few horses, one of them, as we've just spoken about, Circus Maximus, another one was Japan, another one was Kew Gardens, who we'll touch upon later. Um, Japan. It was just interesting, um, beautifully bred and out of this family, out of this mare, Shastai, who's produced just multiple decent horses, basically. Has Mogul this year. He's a Derby fancy, among others. Um, and last year, he was a horse who was campaigned over the 12 furlongs down to the 10 furlongs. Uh, but we saw him win at Ascot in the King Edward Stakes. And that was a super impressive win. Yes, it was only a group two and he was at the 12 furlongs. But And now we, it looks like they are going to run him in the Prince of Wales, so he's dropping down to 10 furlongs. But he's a horse who has, as when he won the Jubbon International beat Chris Lotion, he's proved he's, he's, he seems to be equally decent at both 10 and 12, which is obviously a complete joy to have the options, essentially. Um, I think they see this as a starting point for Japan. Um, they'll obviously start his account this year over the 10 furlongs and then see how he gets on and they might step him back up to the 12 furlongs in due course but I wouldn't be concerned about the 10 furlong trip for him and yeah he's acted at Ascot before he's you know a multiple group one winner basically he's won um, the big race at Longchamp with the pre the, the what did he win there oh yeah it was the pre the Grand Prix de Paris where um, probably wasn't the I don't know whether that was the deepest of group ones in hindsight, but he won that really well on the day. And then, yeah, he went on to York and won the Jumon International. So he's a very high-class individual. And just looking at that anti-post betting again, he's one of the horses that is, you know, bar incident and accident, is going to run there. Um, I guess this this year, obviously completely different for Aiden, and I'm sure he's had to adapt his training tactics in a way because these horses would have been ready to run prior to this and he's probably had to keep them on the boil. It'll be interesting to see how many of them need a run, how many of them come on for a run. Obviously, that's something that we see happen a lot with Aiden's two-year-olds, which we might touch upon later. But I think these older horses, he's probably got a fairly decent handle on them now, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. And uh, it, doesn't look the, it doesn't look the deepest of races. Barney Roy, who we've already talked about for the mile race, he's a shorter price for this, so maybe is more likely to come here. 
Gayath, I don't think we'll see. I think after his impressive display at Newmarket the other day, it was talked about that he'll go to the Eclipse and take on a Nabel, which would be fascinating. Headman's of interest for Roger Charlton. He's always who you would imagine does does run here as well. I can't see any other options for him. He's always who ran really well in the Irish Champion Stakes last year. Um, a belter of a race. He improved all of last season. And yes, he doesn't have that kind of strict Group 1 form as of yet, like Japan has in the book. But he's definitely a horse I would put the sort of improving marker next to for me. Um, he's still fairly lightly raced, even as a four-year-old now. So another one, and Roger Charlton's had a good start to our, obviously, strange season. He'll have Jason on board. Um, so he'd be one at 10 to 1 or even bigger, who would be a horse who I would hope, you know, I would not be in any way surprised to see run into a decent place and run a very good race, to be honest with you. I'd be looking forward to seeing him, actually. Let's move on to the Group 1 Gold Cup on Thursday. Two and a half miles, four-year-olds and upwards. Now, I know that you love these long-distance races. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, this is really, this is just a grueling race. Any horse seeing this out and doing well, it's just phenomenal. And, of course, Stradivarius, defending two-time Gold Cup winner. He's supposed to be coming back in this. He's evens, where I found him anyway. Uh, what are your thoughts um, yeah, I, I do love a long distance race. Yes. For anyone who is wondering who the hell this girl is on the podcast, I like I come from a jumps racing fan base originally. So although I've fallen head over heels in love with the flat racing now, I still find myself looking towards the sort of mile and a half, two mile races, which you guys over there probably roll your eyes at knowing that you love a bit of speed. But for me, I guess it's the fact that it is such a grueling race and you do need that guts and determination. Um, but this renewal of the race is going to be fascinating. Obviously, we saw Stradivarius make his um, race course debut this week back at, um, you know, seasonal debut back in Newmarket where he was beat. Um, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I would say that they just use that as a complete prep race for another tilt at a Gold Cup looking for a third win in the race. Obviously, he's won the last two renewals and he's such a gutsy performer. I, I love him. I just think he's brilliant. He's won um, two stairs, triple crowns and the million pound bonus two years running. He's, um, yeah, he's a fabulous horse and a fabulous horse for all connections as well. Like what a treat to be involved in. Um, so he is rightly topping the betting for me because he is, he, he holds the crown at the moment. Um, like I say, he's going to have had that prep run, which almost comes back to when we were talking about the sprinters earlier. I do think that's going to be a benefit to quite a few of these horses, as long as they can back that run up in quite quick succession, which is what we're looking for Stradivarius to do here. Q Gardens is the horse that beat him last year on Champions Day over the, in the long distance championship race there. Now that was half a mile shorter. Is it half a mile shorter? I think it is. Um, so Q Gardens has to now prove himself over this extended trip again. But it's not a concern, I don't think, for the team at Bally Doyle. And for all I love Stradivarius, I'd be nervous of Kew Gardens. I was surprised, again, referring back to this Kevin Blake, Aidan O'Brien interview. I was surprised how kind of almost, not bullish, that's definitely not the right word. Aidan O'Brien's never bullish. But he clearly holds this horse in very high regard in the staying ranks. I mean, Kevin asked him, you know, you've won um, gold cups before with fame and glory, order of St. George, Yates won four. Where does this horse rank? 
And his reply was right up there with the very best. So that scares me. <laughs> if you're a fan, that's definitely a scary comment coming out of Bally Doyle. Um, he just said he's been incredibly straightforward to train this season as well. And, um, you yeah, know, he's, he's a out and out stare. And yeah, I mean, it, it, that for me is one of the most interesting races of the week. Um, the Stradivarius Q Gardens rematch. Donica O'Brien to win the long distance cup on Champions Day last year at Ascot gave that horse an absolute peach of a ride. Just brilliant. And he just outbattled Stradivarius. Um, and we all were there to see Stradivarius win it, and he didn't. Um, and I think a lot of people will think that, you know, maybe things done differently over the further trip this time around. Stradivarius will be able to flip the form back again. But, you know, Hugh Gardens has already had the measure of him once. And on my anti-post bettings, he's a sort of four or five to one shot. Um, he definitely goes there. And there, like I say, you know, not shying away from the challenge. So, yeah, really interesting. Another horse that um, people connections have been very bullish about is this technician, um, Martin Mead's horse. A horse who, I think, was it Alex Hammond did an interview? You should try find it on Twitter. She did an interview with Martin Mead, it was, who was talking about technician going for the, the, the Gold Cup. And basically she said, I've never heard a trainer that confident about a horse. I think he just thinks he's got him in absolutely fine fettle. We last saw him when the pre-Royal Oak um, in very heavy conditions in France at the back end of last season. Um, but again, he's a horse who just constantly has been improving and stepping up all the time. And um, he's a pretty big price. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's gonna, that's a fascinating race. It's going to be one of the highlights of the week for me. It always is. But this Kew Garden Stradivarius matchup is big. Really looking forward to that. Well, you definitely sold me a bit on Kew Gardens. If there is any value, I think four to one, five to one is really, really good. And as you mentioned, Master Aiden O'Brien, if he says he's right up there with the best, that is quite something for him to say because he, like you mentioned, he never boasts about his horses being the best ever or in the best, you know, the finest form. Like, for example, um, I know Gay Waterhouse always says that this horse is the best I've ever trained, which is like every single horse that she talks about, which is great, oh, really? but not very useful she does that i mean absolutely love her first lady racing in australia but she does that best horse i've ever trained better than this like better than piero better than this and aiden doesn't do that so when he goes he's right up there yeah i was i i'm taking note well i was cutting that interview so i obviously didn't do the interview kevin blake did the interview and i was cutting it over the weekend just been and i'm very good friends with kevin blake so on friday when i knew he'd done the aiden o'brien interview at bally doyle I texted him and said, how does it go? Like, you know, just like from a producing point of view, obviously I'm going to watch through all the footage, but like any real snippets. And he said he was really strong on Kew Gardens. Like it was really interesting. I asked him how he compares to his great stayers and he said, well, up there. And I was like, bloody hell, yeah. Right. So fast. Well, let's move on. Oh, sorry. Do you have anything to add? No, no, I'm done. I'm done on the old gold cup. Let's move on to the Friday for the Commonwealth Cup. Uh, six furlong, three-year-old Colts and Phillies. Um, interesting race because I was looking at different prices and Earthlight is actually quite like big price. Is he not going to go there? That is only I found him at eleven to one, which I think is like ridiculously huge price for a horse that's unbeaten in five starts, including two Group One events. So 
Okay, so this race, I am going to hold my hands up and say, honestly, I really don't know where to fire the dart at, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of horses in the betting that aren't going to go. Um, I, it's just that, for me, it, it's not my favourite race of the week, and this particular renewal is going to be tricky to get a handle on before we know entries and declarations, to be honest with you. But like you, it's fascinating that straight away you picked out Earthlight. And I did, because last year, I know everyone, Godolphin had such a brilliant season with their two-year-olds in Europe last year, and this whole Shamadal effect really coming to the fore. Um, and Earthlight was obviously one of them in that two-year-old bracket. He was just fabulous last year i was in dover when he won the pre-morning and beat um the mark johnson horse um oh my god raffle prize of course um he was brilliant that day i love he's he only does enough but that's perfectly great for me i think he looks after himself a bit i think he's a bull of a horse i think he's I'm a real fan of Earthlight and I was so looking forward to seeing him this season. And because of the other horses that Godolphin have running for them, um, obviously Victor Ladorum um, probably was a bit more fashionable in Earthlight for various reasons last season and then has come out and done what he's done this season. And then obviously Pinatubu as well um, was sort of stealing the headlines over here. Even though Earthlight came across here and won the Middle Park and he won the Pre-Morning as well, He's right up there with the very best. But for some reason, I just got the impression people hadn't latched on to him as how they've latched on to some of the other Godolphin two-year-olds, now three-year-olds. But for me, he was right up there. And yeah, he might not be the flashiest, but he knows how to get the job done, as we saw time and time again. Now, what worries me, like you're saying, I'd, I'd love to see him in the Commonwealth Cup. I think it's a wide open race, be right up his street. He looks like a horse who, you know, even at three, this trip will be absolutely fine for him. I, I worry why he's such a big price. And I think as far as I can tell, there have been targets for him along the way that he's missed. That would be a concern. Right. That definitely would be a concern. Um, so if he tips up, he's a bit like what we were saying about Persian King. Um, Andre Fab's not going to bring him along, per, you know, for the just for the holiday. So if we did see a flight here, I I'd love that. Basically, I'd love that, and I just think he's probably a big price because of the missed targets and the potential. Has you know something gone wrong and he might not make it? I don't know, but that's probably why he's such a big price. But he's one of the most fascinating ones in that race. Other than that, I mean, you've got a couple of horses that we've seen in the Guineas already got threat who's a very good um two-year-old last season but it it's just one of those races that's too wide open for me to give a strong account on except for the fact that i'd love to see earth like there yeah i saw um i think the shortest horse in the betting that i found was pierre lapin um roger varian's horse uh, andrea zini he won the dubai duty free mill reef over six furlong uh, he's only been he's only raced twice hence still unbeaten I mean, I can really put my finger on That's why I was so sort of wondering. Well, that's why I was so surprised to see Earthlight so cheap, like so cheaply priced in terms of 11 to 1 compared to a 5 to 1 I found on Pierre Lapin, who's to me quite unexposed still. Yeah, definitely unexposed. And I think that Mill Reef win really made people sit up and take note. Um, Roger Charlton isn't a horse who you'll see sort of bang. Uh, isn't a horse. <laughs> isn't a trainer. 
who you will see sort of banging on about horses too much. And so a horse like him may have like slightly flown under the radar, not under the radar, but you know, there's not been a huge amount of chat about him. I think it's fair to say. Um, and he is a horse who I think that, you know, it looks like that's the main target for him. So, yeah, I mean, he's, but, you know, he's over half the price of a horse like Earthlight, who's, you know, like you touched upon, a multiple winner at two at the highest level. So a fascinating betting heat for sure. But um, for me, I'll be staying clear until I see who's going to line up, I think. Yeah, of course, that makes it very difficult that we're trying to record an Ascot preview without the actual Ascot fields. But that way, that's what you get when you're trying to get a podcast out on Thursday. And But, you know, normally during a normal year, you have those really big list of entries that at least you can kind of figure out what's going on. But just because this year has been so strange in terms of we're not racing, like you mentioned, we've not had the normal prep races that horses would go for. So we're really sort of clutching at straws here oh god i mean you know it is a complete sort of i feel like you're in the dark and hoping for the best basically just because the way you've got you know the two-year-old races the way the qualifying system is in ireland the way the qualifying system has been over here with the ballot idea i mean it's all over the shop you just don't know what's going to line up and it is going to be you know it's going to be very different. I think it's fair to say there's going to be some surprises. You know, it's not going to be a Royal Ascot like any other. And so on the results front and from a betting point of view, um, you know, trying to find an angle in at this stage is tricky. But hopefully we're sort of giving listeners a little bit of an insight into some of the sort of um, matchups we might see, shall we say, rather than any firm opinions. <laughs> Well, I'm loving your input on the Aidan O'Brien front as well. So I'm hoping I'm not going to be the only one that thinks that is absolutely superb. You just don't hear that much from him aside from his very measured and, you know, well-spoken responses on TV. No, exactly. I think the nice thing about going to Bally Doyle and him being interviewed by someone like Kevin Blake is, um, you know, I'm sure he knows Kevin. Kevin's heavily involved in his son Joseph O'Brien's yard. Um, and he obviously knows Kevin from his Irish days and journalistic side of things. So I think when you get him at home and he's in a relaxed mood and he starts talking about horses, you definitely open up a whole world of sort of chat that you wouldn't have necessarily on a race course when you just catch him after he's had a winner and he's in a rush to go saddle the next horse and the owners are calling and the whole nine yards. Completely understandable. Jesus, like completely understandable. But definitely those sort of longer style structure interviews when you catch him at home, um, you seem like I personally have noticed you seem to get more out of them. So, yeah, it's that, that having watched that multiple times over the weekend producing it, I feel like I have good insight for once. <laughs> no, you do. You definitely do. Well, let's move on to some of the two-year-old races. Now, as we already mentioned, they're very tricky because a lot of two-year-olds have either not started yet or they haven't. you just got one race. But it'd still be nice to sort of paint the picture. Um, let's start with the... Group three, Albany, six phone, two year old for Phillies. Uh, favorite here, More Beautiful, which is another Philly for the O'Brien stable by Warfront. Uh, one at Nace on the 8th of June. So that makes it for us yesterday. Yeah, yeah. One yesterday was impressive, actually. Um, again, so when Aidan O'Brien was talking about his two year olds, what he was saying is 
because of the qualifying system, they're basically the races this week in Ireland, they're just going to be chock-a-block and they're obviously going to have multiple runners and the first four home can then go on to Ascot, as I think what he was saying. So he's he was throwing them in there. Now, one of the things that we've noticed in Europe along the way is that, along the years maybe, is that um, Aidan O'Brien's two-year-old often, well, more than often improve their first run, as you would expect for two-year-olds, obviously. Um, but sometimes they take a huge step forward for their first run. But obviously this year has been entirely different because he's had them for so much longer at home. Like, you know, he's been training them for months where we would have seen them running. So rather cleverly, Kevin Blake had asked him, you know, are we going to expect to see your horses improve like they would do normally from their first run to their second run, or are they essentially going to be a little bit tighter this year because you've had more time to prepare them? And he was like, no, 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 definitely. Like we'll, you know, we've, we've obviously had more time to prepare them, but they'll still come on for the run. So the fact that more beautiful managed to win first time out at Nace yesterday in that maiden and was very impressive. I mean, she went off, I think it was the 11 to four favorite. So, um, yeah, she was obviously well fancied and she won by four lengths. What more could you ask for? Um, and she's won, that those are the sort of performances we're going to see this week. We'll see more this afternoon and we'll see more tomorrow. And they'll be going in at the top of the betting for these two-year-old races. She finds herself well up there. She's by Warfront. She's obviously very precocious. She's one of the first ones he's banged out in these two-year-old races. And she's won as you like. So what more is there to add really? Like something to forward to. Wesley Ward will sub- probably have something that's twice as fast as her little Peter. <laughs> Well, I do think Wesley Ward will be pointing one of his two-year-old fillies here. Uh, I've got Flying Aletha priced up uh, by Tiz now. She was a, a mainly special winner at Gulfstream Park over five furlong. Now, that is speed, speed on speed at Gulfstream Park. On the turf, that is just rattling rock hard. And all they're doing is going from gate to wire. They're on the drive. That is just how it works. And that's fine. But that also means, as you mentioned, that he comes over here with these incredibly fast two-year-olds. I, I'm, for one, love to see how this ends up and how the ground ends up playing um, at Ascot this year as well. Yeah, that that will be fascinating. Obviously, a different challenge for the grounds team there because obviously they've not had any racing on it all season. And we've had an incredibly wet winter and then a very, very, very dry spring over here. So we've seen shots of the course where obviously the green turf where they're going to race looks absolutely pristine. And then the infield where they obviously haven't watered and done anything to it. I mean, it is as dry as you like. You can't believe the spring we've had. I burnt. I burnt very severely. And then I had to be on a work call the next day. And my boss was like, where have you been, Vanessa? I mean, on <laughs> different colour to everyone else on the call. I was just like, really sorry. I've still been in the UK. I think he thought I'd gone off on like a sneaky lockdown holiday or something. Um, but yeah, no, it's been a remarkably dry spring. The ground is going to um, affect, obviously, all the runners as usual. But uh, look, I think we can rely on Ascot for them to deliver wonderfully wonderful turf. But um, in these in these two year old races, basically. If Wesley Ward, the Wesley Ward effect is huge over here. The punters will really latch on once we know what he's running in which races. And those just uber fast two-year-olds, they just have a different a different gear to us at this time of year. Just something, you know, above and beyond. It's actually 
remarkable how often we've seen the speed of his two-year-olds and then obviously it's come they have he's had plenty of runners over here it's a well-trodden path for him um to bring the two-year-olds over here and show us that real early gate speed it's it's so i'd love seeing it because it's just so different to what we're used to seeing we're used to seeing our two-year-olds sort of dribble out the stalls and then we catch up as the race goes on and wesley ward's horses are like bang there professional heads down as fast as they can go from a to b credit to him and them basically but yeah he's gonna um throw a few into the mix which will be really interesting yeah i actually made a, a little mistake there saying flying aletha one on turf but it was actually on dirt because this is one of the downsides of us not being able to race is that normally wesley would have a lot of his two-year-olds runners uh, jumping out at keeneland on the turf there but keeneland keeneland's meet was postponed so he didn't get the chance to debut them there and has had a few debuting on dirt instead of turf. So Flying Aletha was one that actually won on dirt. Now, of course, very faster, but still very different. So I do think that he's one of the trainers that obviously has been definitely affected by the lockdown and that he, in, case, in sort of terms of not having that normal setup that he likes when bringing these horses over, like that normal course, that normal sort of structure regimen, he's not been able to do that. Yeah, really interesting that. Um, obviously, everyone's sort of had everything disrupted in different ways. But definitely, like you say, for horses travelling, um, I know Grey Emotions bringing over sharing for the coronation stakes. And um, then obviously, Wesley Ward's come here with his sort of battalion of horses. And when I, I actually interviewed Grey Emotion yesterday about sharing and he was saying that Wesley's done a bit of a mixture, I think, this year. I think he sent horses over early and then some he's sending over later as well. So there's sort of a little bit of trial and error going on because of the situation we find ourselves in with various lockdowns and, you know, the whole situation is just isn't ideal. Um, and I do feel like, you know, the people who are choosing to travel their horses, owners, and then Wesley Ward as a trainer, you know, it's a great sporting thing to do. And to even do it through a pandemic is pretty impressive, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, pretty gutsy as well. So let's move on to the last day of the meet, Saturday, but, you know, phenomenal day. Action-packed because they wanted to move these two-year-old races to later in the week to give them a little bit more time, as you mentioned, in between, you know, a lot of the horses stepping out this week and then coming back so soon they try to give them as much time as they could um the queen mary stays now more beautiful is also the favorite in that um obviously where would you go i mean if you can go six furlong or five furlong i mean the queen mary is kind of the crown jewel right yeah i think so what scares me in this race is your campanelli is it wesley ward's horse she was phenomenal, wasn't she, on debut, the way she kicked off that turn. I was watching that uh, before we started recording. And um, that run, I can't remember even where it was. But honestly, I was just like, oh, God, if that's what we've got to go up against, we've got absolutely no chance. Look at her go. She was lickety split that day. And um, she's priced up in this. So that'll be fascinating if she turns up. And, yeah, look, more beautiful. The odds compilers have just chucked her in anywhere because it's just like, well, she'll go. So let's price her up. You know, and where she ends up, we'll see. Um, but no, that Campanelli of Wesley Wards, I'd definitely be scared of, to be honest with you. <laughs> she won by three and a half lengths. That was at Goldstream Park as well, but she did run on the turf, which is a very firm turf up there. Because it's, you know, it's Florida in the summer. It's very hot. It's humid. Uh, I don't know they do a great job to keep that turf good, but it's definitely a, a firm turf, much firmer than uh, we're used to in Europe anyway. 
Yeah, I can imagine rattling quick ground and Campanelli beat Royal Approval that day um, when they both made their race course debuts and it's just fascinating that Royal Approval was a shorter price but yet Campanelli came out and streaked away and um, if they both come over it'll be fascinating to see where both those two Wesley Ward fillies end up Um, but in terms of other European runners in the race it'll be a case of wait and see there's some big priced horses in there who I think will shorten once they're confirmed but for me it's uh, watching brief only at this point let's move on to the Coventry stakes six on the other two-year-old feature one of the most anticipated two-year-old features of the meet uh, 10 to 1 Poetic Flair, a dollar protocol by the master Jim Bolger, won uh, five furlongs at Nace on the 23rd of March. So that was a, a little bit earlier. Yeah, pre lockdown, pre lockdown, which seems like a different world ago, doesn't it? A life before lockdown. Yep. Can't believe it. Uh, but this another race I, I actually really like the Coventry it's it's it thrown up some good winners in the past it's thrown up some horses that have gone on to make stallions which for me is obviously of interest and um again you know the it's 10 to 1 the field essentially the horse that jumps out of me as a horse that um from the Mark Johnson stable who's had a phenomenal start to the um campaign the restarted campaign is running at a currently a 17% strike rate I think he's had 12 individual um, I can't remember how, I can't remember what the stats are, but his two-year-old runners to winners is incredible as well. And one of the horses he's got in here is the Thunder of Niagara, who made his debut and won uh, at Newcastle, so another Sky Sports Racing track, which is obviously goes down well under Joe Fanning that day. Very impressive. Those six furlong two-year-old races, of course, have been incredibly competitive early on. Um, once the resumption happened, because everyone was just trying to get a run. Uh, Colt by Knight of Thunder, who is just proving to be an incredible early sire um and uh his horses yeah time and time again are sort of hitting the right notes on the track so this is a horse who i was quite taken with but at this point you've got a you know a handful of horses there who've won one of the year old races or run well in them and it's kind of um you know who who you personally took a fancy to and i was very taken with thunder of niagara and the fact that mark johnson is just you know, he's what a team that is. He's had coronavirus himself, Mark Johnson. He's been out of action for three weeks. His team, to keep the show on the road, to have however many horses he's got, well over 100, 150, whatever. I can't even, I don't know his numbers off the top of my head. I've been to that yard a few times and they've got different managers at different barns. And to come out of this pandemic and hit the ground running how they have, not only with the older horses, but the two year olds as well, just, phenomenal training and team performance i think that's what's really hit home for me from the johnson side of things is what a team they must have because the main man's been out of action for a good while uh of course he has his son charlie helping as well absolutely yeah another father-son combination um he'll have been very heavily involved and of course his wife as well and everyone there but yeah um i think the oh Sorry, someone keeps trying to call me. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, You're so popular. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Thunder of Niagara. I mean, you just look through that Coventry and you can make a case for loads of them at the top of the betting because lots of them made decent debuts. But for me, I was just taken with the way Thunder of Niagara won that Newcastle maiden and um, sticking with a team that you just know is in such great form, I think is going to be probably goes without saying, but it's you know fairly crucial, isn't it? Um going into such a big meeting and with the two-year-olds you'd want to have someone like Mark Johnson on side so yeah 
really looking forward to seeing him again. I think he'll definitely go to the Coventry and he'd be the one just that I kind of picked out of a whole range of decent horses in there. Well, it's a good one to follow indeed. And let's move on to the St. James Palace Stakes, which to me, I mean, this is going to look so different this year because it's a mile race for three-year-old Colts, but we've just had the 2,000 guineas, which was the main point for a lot of these good three-year-old Colts. And I'm looking at the pricing here. We've got Wichita, Pinatuba, and I'm like, I don't think they're going to go there. I mean, it's a turnaround that's just so short that the majority of trainers don't particularly like doing. It's definitely possible, but is it something one would fancy? Not really. No, and that is basically you've summed it up pretty well. It That, that angle is just going to be fascinating about, you know, it's, the St. James's Palace is where you see the clash normally of the French 2,000 guineas, the English 2,000 guineas and the Irish 2,000 guineas. Over the years, um, not necessarily all three of them have ended up obviously in the St. James's Palace, but often at least one, if not two, and sometimes three. It's a real sort of clash of that generation over a mile. And this year, it's just sadly, it's going to be one of those races that we it's, it's not going to be that, obviously. It's just not. Um, we've obviously got the Irish two thousand uh, Irish Guineas weekend coming up. Those horses won't aren't going to turn around and come come to Ascot. We've just had our two thousand Guineas, like you touched upon Pinatubo and Wichita. Are they, I, I think, one of them maybe both would tip up. I mean, Charlie Appleby was talking about Pinatubo being in great form. You know, if he is in good form, would they turn around that quickly? Two weeks? I don't know. Um, be fascinating for the top two in the betting if they did. Palace Pier made his belated um, seasonal reappearance. And there's others in there. Kin Ross and Kenzai Warrior, obviously, we saw them in the 2000 guineas. It's going to be one of the races at Royal Ascot that definitely is significantly weakened because of the circumstances. Um, so it's a bit of a shame, but that's just where we're at with the timings. Like I touched upon before, the BHA and the Pattern Committee and the race planning team put a huge amount of effort in, but there are going to be some races that are just naturally weakened because of the circumstances, and the St. James's Palace is one of them. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add except for what you just mentioned. Possibly, indeed, seeing those uh, 2,000 guineas place getters or horse that ran down the field making that two-week turnaround because possibly that race didn't take that much out of them or they're thinking this race is not coming up as strong, let's try again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at a horse like Kenzai Warrior, whose 2000 Guineas run was out, you know, chance was gone as the stalls opened, fell out the stalls, nearly lost his jockey. Job done. Did he have that much of a tough race? Probably not. Uh, the team are in good form. And will he tip up there at a big price? Probably. But it's, it's, it's kind of stabbing in the dark with the um, horses who, like you say, just haven't had a battle hardened race so far. It's just tricky. It's very tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to the last feature I wanted to get your thoughts on. Because uh, I have to wrap this up at some point, but I still have my uh, quick fire round questions for you as well that I really, really want to do. <laughs> so let's talk about the Diamond Jubilee. Six furlong, four-year-olds and upwards. Uh, the shortest price I found was Hello Yumzane for Kevin Ryan. James Doyle was on, is, has been on board. Uh, he's seven to one. I got him at. He's the 2019 Betfair Sprint Cup winner. Uh, Obviously, a horse that I'm looking forward to seeing again this year. But as you mentioned before, another one that hasn't ran since because, you know, there's no, there were no races. 
no exactly um yeah there were no races sad uh, for me this is last year it provided such a sort of highlight because of course we had blue point winning and he was such a star of last year's royal ascot it was such a thrill to watch in his two sprint performances um so i really yeah, it's a race that um you know it's it's a proper proper sprint championship and blue point last year was just the pinnacle for me but that kind of leads me nicely on to what would be my selection in the race and who i hope we will see which is dream of dreams the sir michael stout horse um who chased blue point home in this race last year um was a fast finishing closer in second and got beaten by a head by a horse who's a you know, champion sprinter. So I think that's pretty fair form. He then, Dream of Dreams then essentially went off the boil really and finished behind Hello Yumzain in that Haydock sprint. Um, and then also went back to Ascot on Champions Day in the sprint and then um, sort of flopped. So, but since then, the key would be that he's had a gelding operation, which I think is really interesting. Prior to that, Ascot good performance where he finished, like I said, second to Blue Point in this race last year. He was pretty consistent. He came into the race in great form. And then I just don't know what's happened to him since. He just hasn't put his best foot forward. Um, he's had conditions to suit, but maybe he put, you know, I, I don't know what's happened. But either way, um, he hasn't delivered again. And now he's had that gelding operation. Hopefully that'll bring back a bit of concentration. He's just one of those high-class horses that could fly in here a little bit under the radar. Um, the Michael Stout team will get rocking and rolling at some point. And he's a horse who I imagine having finished second in it last year to, like I said, such a, such a high class horse. I'm sure they'll have said as a team, let's take it back and have another go next season. Um, so I imagine it's probably been in the diary for him for a whole year. So dream of dreams. Yeah. It would definitely be, um, a horse that I keep an eye on for this race. If conditions come good for him again, he's going to need that sort of good to firm ground, but I think we'll have that. And, uh, now, like I say, gelding operation for him, sadly for him, but potentially behind and a bit of concentration. Um, so yeah, dream of dreams was one that jumped out for me in the anti-post betting, I think quite a big price at this stage. Um, but lots of look, lots of others in there that might make a challenge. Another Dennis Hogan horse that we touched upon before. Oxted, who we've seen win for the Roger Teal team. Already seen him. He's going to come in with the benefit of that run and win. Sands of Marley, a high-class sprinter. I mean, there's loads in there. And there's actually just so many in there. But that um, another wide-open event, again, seven to on the field. You know, what do you say? But for me, it just, yeah, Dream of Dreams would be a little bit of a selection there, I guess. The only one I'm going to add is because I've had some personal experience with him is Space Blues, the four-year-old Dubawi, Miss Lucifer. He was a tiny little chestnut yearling that I got the pleasure of dealing with at Tobertage in, at Kildangan uh, back in 2017. So I remember him. He was quite a highly strung little thing, but he's developed uh, quite well. He was third in the Group 1 Pre-Marie de Geese, over six fell on behind Advertise, and then he was a winner at Haydock on the 7th of June. So love to see him come back, do well. Do I think he stacks up against some of these heavyweights possibly not but you know a little bit of sentimental value there yeah well i love that i love those sort of stories like when you hear a little bit more about their personality it really helps you either get behind the horse or you know sort of take them into your heart a little bit more over your head so those sort of things you've had a lot more hands-on dealings with these sort of horses than i have but yeah i love those sort of characteristic stories it's quite sweet really <laughs> 
Well, it was quite a handful. Let's just put it like that. I remember. Glad you went on so well. All right. Well, so to wrap it up, because we've been going for quite a while, I am going to do the quick fire questions that I stole from one of your interviews that you did uh, earlier. And I found that I thought it was so cool. Now I've added some in, changed some over, but uh, just try to do it a bit cleverly, but it's not always as easy because I didn't want to pitch US against Europe all the time, but I did a little bit sometimes. So uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how you go. Okay. If you got a free trip, Breeders' Cup or Melbourne Cup? Breeders' Cup. 100% Breeders' Cup. It's really on the bucket list. Well, possibly um, next year, maybe coming up. It'd be uh, it'd be good to see you there. I went to my first Breeders' Cup last year and honestly, it was just incredible. Okay, this one had to be in there. Galileo or Dubawi? Well, <laughs> I said Dubawi on the last one and I got loads of stick for it. And look, I'm not taking anything away from Galileo. I'm not, but I just... I have a soft spot for Dubawi and yeah, so I'm sticking with it. And I really got judged for it last time. And don't judge me again, okay? Everyone's allowed an opinion. They're both top class. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, American one, Bob Baffert or Chad Brown? Bob Baffert. Bob Baffert. I would love to spend a day with Bob Baffert. I mean, not obviously again it's kind of like two incredibly high class trainers but for me Bob Baffert is just he looks like such a character I've obviously had nothing to do with him ever but everything he does is kind of entertaining and interesting and oh I'd love to spend a morning with Bob Baffert yeah I think a majority of us would okay uh US against EU Irad Ortiz Jr. or Asheen Murphy Asheen Murphy come on now. <laughs> That was too easy, wasn't it? Yeah, but you know, Irad Ortiz Jr. is super talented, so I thought, I don't know, you might. Okay, of course, Oshin is brilliant. Uh, okay, Kentucky Derby or Breeders' Cup Classic? Oh, I think Breeders' Club. I think Breeders' Cup Classic for me, um, just because I think because I've not spent but I've not spent any time with American racing at all. Of course, I'm aware that the Kentucky Derby is the absolute pinnacle um, for you guys, but for us over here, the translation of the Breeders' Cup is just huge. You know, we all stay up all night to watch it. We enjoy it. We aim horses there. I think I just at the moment, purely just through my exposure to it, I have more of an affinity with the Breeders' Cup and as a result, the Breeders' Cup Classic than I do with the Kentucky Derby. Okay, fair enough. Uh, going back to pitching trainers against each other, John Gostin or Aidan O'Brien? Oh, that is so hard, Naomi. Oh, <laughs> Oh God! Uh, I honestly, oh God, I don't know. God, it's awful. <laughs> um, oh, make a decision. Um, I think probably John Gosden. Oh, I think uh, purely because if I had to have a horse in training, I think. Um, I mean, it's look, it's incredibly close, but John just trains every type of horse and seems to find sort of has that teaming up with Frankie de Tori, which is just at the moment, such a magic combination. They also had that incredible year last year. They really like sort of um, went on the rampage of good with good horses across France and England, actually. And I just think their placing of horses, finding an opportunity for a horse and the way John Gosden speaks pre and post race, you could listen to him all day. Whereas Aiden would probably have to run off. He couldn't give me a debrief because he'd probably be saddling something up himself or doing something hands-on. So I think, yeah, John Gosden for me. 
but it's 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 50 50 to be honest i think someone at one point when writing about john gosson said he would have been brilliant at any job that he would have chosen to do in life like be it a politician or anything like that but he chose to be a trainer the man is just incredibly bright um infinite respect i have for him so let's move on drinks at the track after the last or going to town um drinks at the track after the last i love that i um you know when you go into town you kind of lose people get a bit lost but when you say to someone at the race course i'll meet you at so-and-so bar after the last and if you're lucky they stay open for a little while and you hang around and get a bit of a debrief i just love that i love the kind of last shadows of the day at any race meeting really um i'll never forget just one little anecdote which you will love i was at nace race course once and i was having a drink with a friend after the last after the bumper it was a jumps card the bumper's last race and it was dark outside at this point i met him for a drink in the owners and trainers bar at nace race course and after about half an hour we were still sipping our drinks and the guys behind the bar so irish they said um just flick the switch and shut the door on your way out and they left us in the bar <laughs> yeah Oh, that is as Irish as it comes. I will never forget it. Just hit hit the switch and shut the door on your way out. That was the quote. And I nearly fell off my stool. I was like, sorry, what? And they were like, well, we're, we're done. So just, yeah, hit the switch. Shut the door on your way out. <laughs> oh, that is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, never, never stop the fun. Continue drinking, but we're going to go home now. Yeah, basically, basically exactly that. So, yeah. Okay, breeze up or yearling sales? Um, uh, uh, yearling sales for me, just because I have more of an association with them through sort of um, various different forms. And I love just seeing them in their completely unmolded form. I love that. And I could do that all day. Um, and I just, I love following the pin hook results through. I love looking at the horses that friends have brought as foals and how they've developed, how they've changed. Everything about the yearling sales, it's that unmolded thing that I love. Whereas the contrast with the breeze up sales is you've got a product in front of you, which is almost ready to rock and roll. But having said that, I have so much respect for the breeze up boys, what they do with those two year olds um, and how they produce them and develop them and look after them is just incredible. But for me personally, I love the yearling sales. All right. I, you know what? I wouldn't even know which one I would choose. No. I can make a case for either one of them because they're so different and great to be involved in both sides. Last one, 2000 guineas or Derby? A, a Derby. <laughs> After my... I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> After my abuse to poor David Redfers, manager of Kamiko. Um, I, yeah, I'd have to stick with the Derby. Like I said earlier in the show, for me, it's just the pinnacle of a racehorse, of a stallion-making career, of a three-year-old colt. To be able to handle Epsom um, in a normal year with all the sort of fun of the fair atmosphere and the track and everything that is needed to win a derby, that for me is will always be the ultimate test of a racehorse. And if ever I was involved in anything that came close to a derby, that would just be the dream. Well... Vanessa, thank you so much for everything. That kind of wraps us up. 
I think that does. Yeah, it's been a real, it's been a joy, actually. It's nice for listeners who, um, listeners will probably be thinking, who the hell is this girl? But I knew Naomi before she got on the Dali Flying Start program. Um, she was around in Newmarket quite a bit. And uh, so we've known each other a few years now on and off, basically. Naomi's gone off traveling the world. I've done very little and moved very, not moved very far at all. Um, but we're both sort of on the similar career path. And it's nice to be able to do something like this together. So it's been great. <laughs> it's been phenomenal. I remember that I did some work experience. Was that racing TV at the time? Or no, hold on. It was with Sky Sports Racing because you were there. Yeah, yeah. You came in. It was at the races then. Yeah. yeah. You came into our old Milton Keene offices. And then you also had a day out on track sure you had a day out on track with Tomo I wasn't there for that but when you came in I was obviously there and um yeah it's just great it's great that we now can do these sort of things together across the across the big sea and it's amazing really and yeah it's it's lovely it's been great actually fun fact that day I was on track with Tomo was the day that he had that quote with about Josephine's Gordon's mom about if I know you're a mom <laughs> that was that day classic Tomo <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Yeah, no, it's probably all a bit more professional now you're over there in America and doing it properly. And then over here, we've got Tomo and his sort of funny lines and various different broadcasters. But it's all a bit of fun, isn't it? We won't complain. Tomo is brilliant. Yeah, for those listeners that don't know what went on, he basically insinuated that he knew one of the female jockeys' mum quite closely. It was always it wasn't the case. It was more an, an unintended wordplay that that it came out as. Yeah, yeah, it was very Alan Partridge as always with Tomo. But yeah, hilarious. But I didn't realize you were there that day. But very good, very good. Yeah, I remember thinking. Oh, that, that doesn't sound very good. That might not age very well. And it uh, would age actually very well. It's a, a funny anecdote for anyone who want to look it up on um, Twitter because you also got another one that, are you well? <laughs> are you well? I thought you were. Yeah. Uh, another classic Tomo incident. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's been years that we've known each other so i'm so glad you found the time to come on the podcast with me here i really i was looking forward to it so much because i know that we can just talk for hours and it had been quite a while so yeah thank you so much no thank you thank you for having me and yeah the viewers the listeners are probably thinking god they've like could chat browse but we genuinely could so we've actually kept this very short and sweet <laughs> short and sweet indeed bye or standards. That is such a pleasure to have Vanessa on. I actually had her on Skype so we could see each other's faces as it'd been way too long. And of course, so she could make fun of me huddled up with my uh, cup of coffee as the time difference means she's about five hours ahead of me. And it was uh, early morning here on the East Coast. If you enjoyed her candid and well-founded opinions, fear not. She's back next week going over the Tuesday card of Royal Ascot with me for a special series of In The Money podcasts. Make sure to tune in. Fijne avond, goede dag, welke tijd en dag het ook is, and tot ziens. Good evening, good day, whatever time it is, and goodbye.